himself this morning. We want your word to speak to us. We want to be changed into the image of Christ, not our own. So Lord, come renew our minds, strengthen us in our faith. Give us a clearer call this morning of who you are, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, won't you please turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. My name is Matt Johnson, and it's my privilege this morning to be preaching on a passage we're going to be camping out for a few weeks, Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus tells seven more epic parables. And uh, this time, it's in response to a question from his disciples. And the question is, why on earth, Jesus, do you preach in parables? Maybe you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, we've been jumping around, but uh, we've been looking at some of Jesus' epic parables, and um, we're going to look at that this morning as laying a platform for Matthew chapter 13, is why Jesus chose to use this form of preaching at this specific moment in his ministry. So we're going to read together from Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, version. and we're going to read all the way up to verse 17. And then we're going to jump to verse 34 and 35. Thanks, Dan. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you, the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for the people's hearts has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely see, and with their ears they can barely hear, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. But, talking to the disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Verse 34, and all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. We come to an interesting part of Jesus' ministry this morning. And it's very important we understand where he's at. Because I think for us, why Jesus preached in parables will be a surprise this morning. 
Up until this point, Jesus spoke very plainly. He spoke in a way that you and I would understand. He didn't talk in parables up until Matthew chapter 13. And suddenly he switched. And this was very confusing for his disciples. Because all of a sudden, Jesus switched from plain preaching to storytelling. And so that's why the disciples asked him, Jesus, why are you preaching in parables? Instead of actually making this truth easier to understand we're actually struggling with it even more. And so if you, like myself, when looking at the parable for the first time or maybe a couple of times, you're left, you're left scratching your head going, I don't really understand what this guy is saying. You're in good company. Neither did the disciples, okay? And that's why we have Matthew chapter 13 because we're going to see what Jesus preaches on repeatedly. But Jesus' answer to this kind of phase of his ministry was that he switched entirely to preaching in parables only. And that is significant, and we'll see a bit later on. But his answer to their question is profound. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, it says, To you, disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given. And then he goes on to say, in, or quote, the, Matthew goes on to quote the, the psalm, uh, Psalm 78 verse 2, in Matthew chapter 13 verse 35, he says, I will open my mouth in parables, but then he says something incredible, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That what Jesus was presenting to his disciples and the crowd in these parables was something that the world had waited for, for thousands of years. And now as the king of heaven is proclaiming them, they are having for the first time an opportunity to encounter the secrets of heaven. Now I want to push pause there for a moment. I want to ask you, how important is this thing called the kingdom of heaven to you? Because to Jesus, it is what summarized his ministry. If Christ was here preaching from this pulpit, everything he said would be attached to this thing called the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Matthew the apostle tells us what Jesus preached. He says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, straight after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the very first thing he began to preach was in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It was this. It says, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not only that, but when his disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, he gave the famous Lord's Prayer, not so? Shall we say it together? It said, Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' prayer life, his motivation was the kingdom. The thing that got Jesus going and what he asked the Father for was the coming of this kingdom of heaven on earth. And he said, disciples, if you want to know what's on my heart and what you need to be praying for is the ushering in of this kingdom in an ever-increasing form. Now, he then switches it. He says, disciples, now that you know what's motivating me, if you want to be my follower, 
if you want to be a Christ follower, the thing that has to motivate you is the kingdom. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. He's talking about the Gentiles, which in our context are those who don't know God. Motivated by money, motivated by clothing, looking good, keeping healthy, good-looking bodies. He said those things don't be motivated by Christians. What you need to be motivated by is this thing called the kingdom of God. You need to seek it out above all other things. And so when Jesus called these 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10, when he commissioned them, he said, guys, I want you to proclaim one thing. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, he says, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, it was so important to Jesus that the one thing he chose to speak about after he was resurrected from the dead, just give that some thought. You've got 40 days with your disciples and you are coming in various ascensions to heaven and back for 40 days being revealed to them. The one thing Jesus spoke on was the kingdom, Acts chapter 1 verse 3. But the problem is this, is how is someone supposed to proclaim something they know nothing about? And that was the problem with the disciples. And if I had to be vulnerable with you this morning, I've been a Christian for a number of years, but I'm still grappling with what exactly the kingdom of God is. Because the more I see in God's word, the more I realize there is just so much more. And the reason why Jesus tells these parables is because in them are the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And the, the kingdom of heaven is like a diamond that you have to look at of immeasurable worth. You look at it through every single facet. And the problem with these disciples was Jesus was asking them to proclaim the kingdom, but like you and me, they didn't really understand what the kingdom fully meant. And if I had to ask you this morning, could you define to me, Matt, what the kingdom of God is? Would you be able to do it? It's not so easy. Well, Jesus then goes into this intensive training from Matthew chapter 10 onwards. And we arrive at Matthew chapter 13, and I encourage you this week to read these parables. But you'll notice every single parable is about the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus is wanting to unpack to his disciples just how vast and magnificent this kingdom is. But it's very tricky. It's very tricky. Because of this kingdom's nature. The reason why we struggle to understand it is, is because we don't really engage with it. You can't engage with it at the level of your senses or even at the level of your intellect. This kingdom is different. Its nature is different. And first and foremost, what we need to realize is this kingdom is centered in a person, the King, Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what the kingdom of God is, it is centered around the king, Jesus. And the reason why it is so difficult to actually engage with this kingdom is it's because it starts and flows from a relationship. Is that the way we enter the kingdom is by meeting the king. And the only way you grow in what the kingdom is is as you engage with this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. You will not find more of the kingdom of God or be able to engage with it through ritual, through religion. 
You won't even be able to engage with it through duty. The only way that you come to understand the power and the purpose of this kingdom is through a relationship of engaging with the king. And may I say this to those who are Christ followers here, and for those that are looking in and wanting to become Christ followers, Christ is the center of our faith and the understanding of the kingdom. And what's happening in your life and mine is there is a competition for your attention and for your affection. And the competition is based on this, is how much do you understand that you only walk and experience and see the kingdom as you walk and experience and see the king? And for us this morning, the reason why the nature of this kingdom is so difficult is it's because our hearts get so cold so quickly to, towards Jesus. But this morning, I want to say the way that you start to experience and understand the kingdom is when you seek after the king. And this kingdom is summarized in two words, Jesus Christ. But the second aspect about the nature of this kingdom that makes it so difficult is that it's spiritual. It's not like your coffee in the morning when you wake up and you go, mmm, smells so good. You know what I say? How many of you get to see Jesus on a daily basis and touch base with him in the flesh? No? No. It's not like your wife. Come on, pick up your socks. Come on, you've got to get better. And I'm grateful for my wife. I'm, I'm a better man for her. But Jesus doesn't come in the flesh. In actual fact, God is calling you to pursue something you can't see. And may I put it to you like this. The kingdom of heaven is the realm of the Spirit. It's called the kingdom of heaven. How many of you have ever seen heaven? I wouldn't be surprised if one of you put up your hands. But you're the exception to the rule, right? But I say to you, guys, heaven is real. And as often as I can, I want to ask you the question, are you ready for it? Because for the Christian, we are shaped by something we cannot see. And the call of the gospel to you is to respond to a king you cannot see and say, in faith, I believe, so that you are ready for something you cannot see right now. And the only way you enter into this kingdom is by the help of the Holy Spirit. And friends, if we are living lives that ignore or grieve the Holy Spirit, this kingdom will be shut to you and me. Because what is the full fundamental premise of this kingdom is this. Is that this king... We only see by the help of the Spirit. And without His help, we can see nothing. How real is that for you today? It comes by revelation. And no amount of our cleverness is going to give us more of the kingdom. It's only with the help of the Spirit. The other thing that makes it tricky is this, is that it's internal. Ever thought about that? Do you know how the kingdom moves? It's from heart to heart. It is as one life encounters Jesus and shares it with the next. And I want to ask you this morning, the difficulty or the tricky part of this is how we perceive the kingdom. It's not something physical. And it's not something that can be forced on somebody. One of the black marks in the history of the church of the Crusades by the sword, they said, you'll believe Jesus. you believe he's the king. Didn't work. Because the heart has to be persuaded. 
And that's the point of the parable of the sower. Nor will the jihadists ever be able to persuade people by violence because fundamentally the kingdom of heaven moves from heart to heart. The fourth is this, is that the kingdom is still progressing. It started, but it's not finished yet. Just as Christ the King arrived on earth and started the work of the kingdom, its fullness is only going to arrive when he comes again. Now that's tough for you and me as Christians. Because we are living, as PJ Smith said, in the now and not yet. And if I had explained it to you like this, is we see miraculous healings from time to time here in church. And every time we see a healing, it is a flash of the foretaste of what the kingdom of God is going to look like when it comes. When the king of heaven comes in that moment, we are going to see an abolition of sickness. But the problem is, every time we pray, we don't see healings. I tell you what, I'll be honest here, as, as, as one of the elders out at the ridge, my congregation's quite old. <laughs> they struggle a lot with illness, and a lot of them need prayer every service. And I know James 5's teaching is to anoint them with oil, so they come, and I'm going, Jesus, please, you've got to heal this person. And I anoint them with oil, and I pray for healing. But very, very seldom does Jesus heal. But I come and I say, God, I know you can do it. Friends, it's because the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in fullness yet. And that plays out in some painful ways for you and me. One of it is, in, is the experiencing of God's presence. How many of you in a, in a service or just in your time with the Lord, you just experience the presence of God, but it goes. You just say, please stay a bit longer, Lord. Please, please just stay. Just say, and it goes. It comes at us in waves where we get a taste of what is to come in the future. But friends, it will only come in its fullness this side of the grave when Jesus comes back in glory. Because, the last thing I want to say, the reason why this kingdom can be so tricky in its nature is that even though it is unseen, it is eternal. And so when you come into the kingdom of God and you're welcomed in through your new birth in Jesus Christ, you are grafted into the kingdom for eternity. And the reason why Jesus talks about the kingdom so much is he says, Christians, you must be motivated by what you cannot see because what you cannot see is eternal. But the problem is for you and I, is we run, out of, run after stuff that is so temporary. And he says, you need to be fervent in making sure in your readiness for heaven your motivation for heaven, that those around you are ready. Why? Because when Jesus comes back again, or when he calls a person to glory, the moment for them being able to enter into the kingdom shuts down entirely. When Jesus comes again to earth, the time for repentance and faith is finished. The kingdom will no longer expand. When Christ comes again, it will be the final Number of people ushered into eternity. And so for us as Christians, we are motivated by the kingdom in understanding everything we have must be shaped by what cannot be seen and understanding that all of our relationships must be shaped by an understanding that they need to be ready for what they cannot see yet. And so the kingdom, whilst it's unseen, is massive for you and me. And this is where the parables come in. You see, the parables contain secrets to the kingdom of heaven that we don't understand at the mere level of nature. In other words, they're a bridge between 
our natural understanding of life and the spiritual breaking in as we see the kingdom. And that bridge, that interplay between seeing things through the lens of the kingdom, shaping our everyday natural lives on earth, is the purpose of the parables. They bring heaven down on earth to us. And may I say this today, I want to unpack five purposes of the parables. And I believe that they might shake some of our understanding of what God is and who He is. And I want to ask you just to be open in the next couple of minutes for me to unpack the vital importance of letting the parables speak to us because the parables perfectly reflect God's character and nature. The first purpose of the parable is this is that they safeguard the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Can I ask you a question this morning? Can you cope with the fact that God keeps some things secret from us? Has anybody here ever asked the question, why, Lord? Hey? Let's have a show of hands. Anybody ever asked God the question, why, Lord? Yeah? How many of you have ever experienced the immediate answer to that question? How many of you are still waiting for the answer to that question? How many of you, after fasting and praying, are still waiting for the answer to that question? Friends, when you start to come to the parables, you start to understand that this God is mysterious. And that when you come to this God of heaven... We are on unequal footings with him. You see, our problem as a 21st century church and 21st century humanity is that we have a problem with authority. We see everyone as equal. And as soon as somebody tries to superimpose that onto us, we don't like that. And may I say that spilled over into the church and the way we see God is that this God is glorious. And this God is eternal. And this God is immortal. And this God, whenever he comes down and reveals himself to us mere mortals on earth, friends, it is the greatest interchange of grace you can imagine. When the God of heaven, who is all-wise, all-knowing, all-important, all-powerful, decides to reveal an element of his nature to you and me, there is no greater compliment. It is more than the Nobel Prize or Oscar. None of earthly wisdom, applause, or success can give you more of God. He only gives it to us by grace, and it comes from his hand only. And I want to say to you this morning, have you thought about that chapter in Isaiah 55 verse 8? It says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 13 verse 11, Jesus said in those words to the disciples, He says, Disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Friends, the parables first and foremost keep us in our place is that with humility, unless God shows us His nature and His ways, we are in the dark. And our posture towards this God of heaven is one of humility and one of understanding 
that there is a side that is mysterious to him, which he has full control over how he decides to reveal it. The second is this, is that they are a form of judgment. This might be a very big surprise to some. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 13, he says, This is why I speak to the crowds, them, in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, lest, as verse 15 says, they turn, and I would heal them. How many of you have heard Jesus as being a great storyteller? Yeah? How many of you have ever heard Jesus' parables as evidence that telling stories is a good way of preaching? I want to say to you this morning, they'll have to look to another place in Scripture for that support. Because the parables came at a moment in Jesus' ministry where the God of heaven said to Israel, no more. For 12 chapters, Christ had come over and over speaking plainly, talking clearly, saying with absolute clarity, this is why I am coming, and this is the kingdom. But they rejected it over and over and over. And instead of the parables making the truth easier to understand, actually made it more difficult. The third is this, is that the parables display God's sovereignty. I want to ask you, what would you define sovereignty as? In terms of God, it is that he is in full control over everything and does not ask our permission as to how he exercises it. He says, to you, the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given. There was a point when God said, no more. That the truth, instead of becoming clearer, was going to become more obscure. So that his judgment would fall on those that had rejected the truth repeatedly and his promise would fall on those who had received it, run with it, grown in it, and responded to it. And I say to you this morning, with awe in my heart, that it is God who decides how, when, and if he reveals himself to someone. Can you cope with that this morning? Some of us here, who of you, us here this morning came to faith in Jesus Christ much later in life? You put up your hand for me. Yeah? Now, haven't you ever asked yourself the question, why didn't it happen sooner? Have you asked yourself the question, why did it take me so long to see? It was because God was orchestrating your moment, and he decided the perfect time, the perfect place. And you still had to respond to him. But he was the one mercifully coming to you and showing you your need for Jesus. Or I can flip it the other way around. How many of you are still praying for some people to come to faith in Jesus Christ? How many of you tried to pin them to the wall and take scripture and say, Jesus is the way that you got to come to Christ? How many of you are still praying? Still asking the Lord? Still trusting him? There is a work here. 
that you can't force God's hand in, although you're appealing to it like we should, but the final authority rests with God as how he's going to confront, how he's going to reveal, and how he's going to call for response from those he's approaching. Why do I make so much of this? Well, I have been thinking a lot about Moses' response to the Lord. You know, it's amazing. God comes to Moses and says, Moses, ask me anything. And Moses said, I want to see your glory. And so God responds to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 to 19. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. But he explains how this name is going to operate. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This God of heaven is not going to be dictated to by anybody on earth. Now that is a radical shift from what popular Christian culture and teaching is feeding the church. Can I maybe just give it out as sound bites of what some of these guys are saying, these popular teachers? Ever heard of this? You declare your blessing. Ever heard of that? You speak your healing. Ever heard of that? You proclaim your success. You claim your breakthrough. You speak it into being. Who is God in the mix there? Who is dictating to who? Friends, this God is a God of glory. And the reason why I make much of this is because on the other side of that teaching is real disaster for faith. Because how many of us here this morning have been praying for healing and are still waiting? How many of us this morning are recognizing that no matter how much fasting and praying and coming to a good God, we realize that we are somehow at his mercy? How many of you here this morning realize when you are desperate to see salvation in a loved one, you just realize that there is something that's got to click that only God can do? How many of us here this morning are waiting for guidance from God and it's not coming? For some of us here, we've been praying and praying, God, show me what to do for months, possibly years, and you are stuck because God's got you in a corner because you know you, as a disciple of Jesus, you're wanting to move with him, but he's not showing you what to do. And so in some sense, at some point in your Christian life, you're going to encounter the sovereignty of God. And the challenge of God is this. Will you let him be himself to you? It was the greatest challenge for Jesus. Do you know the moment that he sweated blood? Was the moment he was confronted with the will of the Father and he was struggling to submit to it. When the cross was coming before Jesus, if there was anybody who could have made demands on the Father and says, you got to get me out of this. I'm your son. I'm sinless. I'm totally pure. I could call upon the angels and rescue me. But Jesus is in a corner. He's stuck in the garden of Gethsemane face with the sovereign God who said, Jesus, you've got to go to the cross. And Jesus' struggle is this. He says, if it be possible, Father, 
Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It is the picture of the Christian at the point of great struggle of saying, God, I recognize I am not in control yet, and I have to submit to your will, and it's painful. Friends, you know what the greatest challenge of a Christian is? If you can say like Job, God, I will affirm you as you are, not only when you give, but you take away. Blessed be your name. You know what the greatest challenge of the Christian is? Is being able to let go of control when you know God is asking you to give it. And I feel jealous for you this morning. Because the risk of these men and women are saying that we are able to dictate to God. Do we know better than Him? Are we so all-knowing and all-wise that we can demand God's hand to move in a certain way when He is the one who knows it all? Do you know when the disciples saw the cross, they saw it as the greatest disaster? But the purpose of God proved true. On the other side of the cross, it was salvation for the world. But Christ had to submit to the will of the Father. And on this side of the grave, you will encounter God who is sovereign who says, you give it without me explaining why. And the question is this. Will you let him be himself to you? Now, I will say this. I'm jealous for a second reason, because as a pastor, my hope is when somebody comes for counseling and they are broken because of the regrets of their own decisions against the God that they knew was saying no, is being able to say to them, you serve a sovereign God who is much bigger than you, and the promise of this is that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Is if you don't have a view of a sovereign God, you won't recover because you're still on the soapbox. You're dictating got you nowhere and you don't know how to get yourself out of the mess. Friends, the mercy of God in his sovereignty is that not only is he able to lead us he is able to rescue us. And that's the kind of God I want to entrust my life to. Well, I won't spend any more time on the other two, but they reveal God's plan of salvation. We're going to see how awesome these parables are in their picture of salvation from start to finish, and they reveal the work of the Spirit. But I want to close with this promise that comes in this passage. Matthew chapter 13, verse 12. It says, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. What on earth did that mean? Friends, I want to say this morning, that promise is for the person who will respond to God when he's speaking. It's as his revelation comes to you, and it comes through many, many forms. It can come as you're reading God's word, as it's being preached, as you're driving your car and the Holy Spirit drops something in your heart. James said, receive meekly the implanted word. It's when God's word comes to you, and usually or surprisingly, it is in that moment, what is your posture going to be? Because for the disciples... They were the ones who wanted more. They came to Jesus, explain this to us, we don't understand. They came to Jesus over and over again. And Christ said, because in this, in this promise, because you are taking hold of the revelation you have, you're setting yourself up for more. Not just a trickle, an abundance. 
want to ask you this morning, how much do you want to know God? How much do you want to know Jesus Christ? It will come down to how you will be willing to let God be himself to you and lay hold of whatever he tells you and to do it. If that's you this morning and you're just hungry and you're willing to let God be God, brace yourself. You are posturing yourself for an abundance of spiritual blessing. But I gently want to just give a warning this morning from Scripture. Jesus goes on to say, to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What does that mean? It means as Jesus was preaching from Matthew chapter 1 to 12, and as the word was coming plainly, they refused to take hold of it and grasp of it, grasp it. And so even what they had, the insight offered to them, was taken away because they wouldn't receive it. And I put it gently to you this morning. When God speaks, there is a window of grace that comes with it. And God is immeasurably gracious. But friends, we are not to take that grace for granted. Because as in your life and mine, you know when God has been speaking, we resist. There comes a time when Matthew 13 clicks in. And you suddenly can't see what God is saying as clearly as you could yesterday. And suddenly you find yourself groping in a haziness. And eventually what happens is you no longer grapple with the word of God. It's closed to you. And so this sense of awe of who God is creates a sense of awe in us. Is that God doesn't work on our time scale and timelines. He asks for reverence. He asks for response. He asks for you. And so I want to say to you this morning, there are four things, four kinds of people that I believe this message is touching. The first is you are wrestling with God. You're wrestling with Him. You know He's telling you to do something and you are just saying, God, I don't want to do it. Or to give something, you don't want to do it. And here this morning, I want to encourage you, respond. The very fact you are still wrestling with the Holy Spirit is a good sign that God's window of grace is still wide open to you. But don't take that for granted. The second is this. You are waiting for God's word. You're praying, God, give me some direction here. Give me some open door. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what to, what to do. When that happens to you, there are two things you must do. The first is this. You ask, well, what is the last thing God said to me and am I doing it? He takes hold, grasps it, does it. More comes to you. Well, may I just say, in your season, your trial, and your position of honor to the Lord is just to wait. Because you are saying, Lord, you are the king. You are sovereign. I need you to show me what to do here. I'm not going to run ahead of you. But lastly, I wanted to say this morning that there are some here who have never personally responded to the king. So the kingdom of heaven, I'm talking about what it looks like once you're in. 
But the same applies for you now. If you're here and you can see, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps you know God is knocking again for the 18th time, God's grace is coming to you this morning. And he says, the way you enter this kingdom is you encounter a person. His name is Jesus. And for you this morning, your response is, would you let God be himself to you by saying, the way God sees you is that you're a sinner. Would you let that word come to you to say, Lord, I affirm what you see in me. And would you then say, I also acknowledge this morning that you have ordained just one way of salvation. That's the crux. One way. Jesus Christ, the King. And would you respond to him this morning in faith by going, I need this King to rescue me. That's where your kingdom journey starts. So I'm going to ask us just to close our eyes. We're going to pray and I'm going to ask God to help us here this morning as we prepare for communion. I'm going to ask you first, before we take these elements, what has God been saying to you? And how are you choosing to respond? By taking this bread and taking this cup, you are acknowledging God's sovereign means of working salvation. And you are saying before the Lord, I am submitted to you. And so today, I want to ask you to look at communion in a new way, perhaps. It is the picture of faith. And a picture of faith is, Lord, I'm submitted to you. I trust you. I trust you. And would you eat and drink remembering Christ and your salvation and how you became a Christian? Yes. But in this time, in this season... Would you take it as a renewed commitment to trust the Lord with obedience to Him? And if this is the first time that you really see what being a Christian means, let this time be your commitment to the Lord to say, I believe, I trust you, my Lord and Savior, forgive my sin and you take and eat it for the first time with eyes understanding that as you have taken and responded to the gospel, so Christ owns you. He's bought you with his body and blood. You belong to him. That's what a Christian is. Jesus has full ownership of our lives. So I'm going to ask you to be just quiet as the deacons in hospitality and team hand out the elements and hold on to them and we'll close together to stay in a place of meditating on the Lord.
Lord. So much is captured in that one word. You are the Lord. And we want to take and eat before you as a church this morning, saying, God, as a church, we want to let you be yourself 100%. We don't want to fashion you in our own image. We want to let the God of the Bible have full claim on his people. And so as we eat, Lord, we do so in reverence and awe of recognizing your sovereign power and finding such peace in knowing that, Lord, you're sovereign, but you're our Father this morning. So we trust in you. As we eat and we drink, we remember Jesus provided by our Father in heaven, the greatest testimony of the love of God and sovereign purpose rescuing the world. Lord, we eat and drink this morning with faith and joy in our hearts. So thankful that you took control in the midst of the world's sin and brought about something glorious. And so we eat and we drink together, saying thank you for Jesus. Let's eat and drink together. And Lord, as we've done so, we commit ourselves afresh to say, Lord, we want to pursue you. We want to love you. We want to find you with all of our hearts. So come to us, Lord. Speak to us. Minister to us. Show us. Help us. Respond increasingly to who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.